Our Old Testament lesson comes from Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. Hear now the word of our God. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their asherim, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool." A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. All those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. This is the word of the Lord. I like to read Jeremiah in conjunction with Psalm 1 because... Jeremiah is either reflecting explicitly on Psalm 1 or else Psalm 1 was written afterwards as an explicit paraphrase of Jeremiah to launch the Psalter. We don't know which. There's no title on Psalm 1 saying when it was written. But it's worth noting that the, you know, we, we oftentimes think about how does the New Testament use the Old Testament? But we sometimes forget that the Old Testament was written over a period of a thousand years. So how does the Old Testament use the Old Testament? There's an awful lot of reflection on what other passages of Scripture were doing and how they fit together. And we shouldn't be surprised that the same Holy Spirit that inspired Moses also inspired David and Jeremiah. And therefore, when we see Scriptures repeating and reflecting on the same themes, this is what the people of God have been doing for thousands of years. Because that same Holy Spirit who inspired the scripture now also illumines your hearts as you read the scriptures so that when you see connections, when you see, wait, I see, and you wonder, was it really there? In the, is this something that the author under, well, whether the human author understood it or not, the Holy Spirit who inspired it put it there. And that's why you're seeing it. Because that same spirit now illumines your heart to see how all these things connect, not just inside the text of scripture, but also between the text of scripture and the text of your life. Because, well, 
we oftentimes turn everything upside down and backwards and we start with the text of our life as my life is, the, is what gives meaning to everything. And so we, then we have to ask, well, so what does the scripture say to me? And sometimes we, we wind up saying, I don't see what the scripture says to me. Right, because we're backwards. We think that our life is the center and we got to figure out how does scripture connect to my life. What happens if we turn it around? What if the story of the scriptures is the story of humanity, is in fact the story of our lives? And how do we fit into the story that God is telling? How do we fit into, it's, it's, it's turning us upside down and backwards, which actually means we're getting reoriented back to the way things really are. Because sin has turned us upside down and backwards. So when something turns us upside down and backwards, that means we're getting reoriented properly back to the way God made us. And in this passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah speaks of these two trees, or well, not really two trees. There's a, a cursed shrub and a blessed tree. And the desert tree, the desert, desert shrub, dwells in parched places far from water. Well, why does a person get prickly and defensive? Jeremiah says it's because he dwells in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. The desert shrub has little access to water, and so it gets prickly and defensive, trying to guard itself from invaders. Well, that's how I can be. When the heat comes, when I make flesh my strength, I get defensive and prickly. But remember where Jeremiah starts that? Cursed is the man who trusts in man. When we trust in man, when our hope is in human strength and resources, whether our own or others, our hearts are turning away from the Lord. And Jeremiah contrasts that with the blessed man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. And then we see this parallel with Psalm 1 because blessed is the man who is like the tree planted by water who sends out its roots by the stream. But then Jeremiah reminds us our hearts are deceitful because sometimes we think everything's fine. We think we're listening to the right voices. But when we make flesh our hope, when we hope in human strength and resources, whether our own or others, we isolate ourselves from the river of living water. As Jeremiah says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. That's, that's a striking way of putting it. Shall be written in the earth. It's basically... Buried, the, the, our words perish, our our words fail, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Wh whose words matter to you? Whose voice are you listening to? Our New Testament lesson comes from Revelation. We'll start in chapter twenty-one, verse nine. Revelation twenty-one, verse nine. Hear now the word of our God. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopaz, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. And there you see the blessed man. You see the the tree planted by streams of living water, the river that flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb, the river of living water that flows from the heart of Jesus. This is a fountain that never runs dry. This is a fountain of living water that will nourish your soul. In order for a tree to grow, it needs water. If If you don't have much rainfall, then the tree needs to find some other source of water. Uh, When you drive through the Great Plains, you you can always tell where the the rivers are. Uh, Look for the trees. If if you see trees, you know there must be some source of water there. And the tree is a a picture used throughout the scriptures. Uh, The land of Israel is generally a rather dry land. Water is a very precious commodity. When I spent a summer in Eritrea, East Africa, which has a very similar climate to Israel, uh, I spent the summer there looking at a lot of desert prickly bushes, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot of greenery, except places where there was water. 
And then when I came back to the United States, I, mean, I was landing in New York City. You might not think New York City was, would be this green, but oh yeah, compared to East Africa, or compared to the, the Middle East, just this brilliant burst of green as I'm coming in. We, we sometimes forget that water is rare in some places. And without water, land is worthless. Water and blessing are connected in many places throughout the scriptures. Uh, when we were going through Joshua and Judges in the evening service, you may recall that, uh, that uh, Caleb gave his daughter in marriage to Othniel, and, and, he, and he gave her a piece of land in the Negev uh, as, as, a, as a wedding present. And she goes and checks out the land, and she, she comes back to her father and says, uh, Dad, <laughs> give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. I mean, great land. I mean, land's pretty worthless without water. So when you think about the idea of blessing and the blessed man, the blessed life, the, the blessed way of living, the idea of blessing throughout the scriptures is to live at peace in the promised land with the promised seed, with and one of the foremost blessings of God to Israel was that if they walked in his ways, he would open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. But if they rebelled, God said in Deuteronomy 28, the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. What does that mean? From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. You'll get sandstorms instead of rain. There's a difference, obviously. Think of the Dust Bowl back during the Great Depression and what happened when a wall of, of, of dirt and sand traveled from Oklahoma to New York City. Yeah, New York City saw the results of the Dust Bowl as this dust cloud traveled all the way across the country. The blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water. The blessed man has a source of life-giving water that does not dry up. As we come to the book of Psalms, as we come to Psalm 1, we, we need to see how Psalm 1 functions as, a, as, as the doorway, as the gate to the whole of the Psalter. As Psalm 1 calls you to remember the day of judgment. Remember that the judgment of God is coming. And will you stand in the congregation of the righteous, verse 5, or will you sit in the seat of scoffers, verse 1? Because the question that launches the Psalter is, who are you listening to? Whose voice matters most to you? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalms 1 and 2 are the only two psalms in the whole of book 1 of the psalm. Book 1 is from Psalms 1 to 41. But the first two psalms are the only ones that have no titles. It suggests that they were placed here at the beginning of the Psalter in order to set up the whole book of Psalms. And there's a way in which, really, Psalms 1 and 2 as will, will fit together to set up what the whole of the book of Psalms is doing. Psalm 1 is often referred to as a Torah psalm. That's the word for law. You, his delight is in the law, the Torah of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. It celebrates God's laws. Psalm 2 will be a Messiah psalm. 
psalm, a psalm that celebrates God's anointed one. And law and Messiah relate more closely together than you might think. When you think of law, what do you think of? Rules, do's and don'ts, that, that tends to be where we go with the word law. And that tends to be how the English word law is used. But Torah, the Hebrew word translated law, has a much wider range. For instance, the, the Jews refer to the five books of Moses as Torah. And they don't mean that, oh, well, that's where you'll find those rules scattered here and there. So for instance, the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis is as much Torah as the, the, the rules and statutes for offerings that we're going through in Leviticus 1 through 9. Have you ever thought of the story of Abraham and Isaac as Torah, as law? Because this is why oftentimes in the book of Proverbs, the word Torah will be translated instruction. Because if you, if you always translate Torah as law, you'll misunderstand what Torah means. Torah includes law because Torah is God's comprehensive direction and instruction for how we are to live as his people. And indeed, you cannot possibly understand the rules that God gives his people if you don't understand the story. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you're reading through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, uh, there's a story that holds the whole thing together. And then there are these rules that are interspersed at various points throughout the story. And it's easy for us to just sort of go, oh, okay, now it's, we, we take a break from, from the story and now we read about the rules. But when you read carefully, you start noticing, actually, these rules are closely related to the stories we just heard. The stories and the rules go together. God's story of, of our lives and his rules for how we live actually go closely together. It's God's Torah. It's his instruction. It's his direction. So if you, please don't hear me as saying, oh, Torah means something less than how, you know, God's law for how you should live. Oh, it, it is God's law for how you should live. But law doesn't mean just sort of this sort of legalistic rule, sort of just do, do this. No, it's his, it's a, comprehensive pattern and picture of this is the life of the blessed man. This is the life of the one who lives in fellowship with me. And let me give you stories as well as rules, because if you want to understand how the rules work, read the stories. If you want to understand what the, the stories are about and where they're pointing you, see what God says about how to live. And so that's what's happening here at the beginning of the Psalms. The book of Psalms will mostly consist of, of, of prayers and, and songs of praise and, and laments. And, but Psalm 1 is different. Psalm 1 is more of a poem about the blessed man. And that's, and as we'll see next time, Psalm 2 will then show us the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. And a couple times further down in the book of Psalms, this will happen again. Psalms 18 and 19 will be uh, a, a Messiah psalm in Psalm 18 together with a, a Torah psalm in Psalm 19, which we used in our prayer of confession today. And then in book 5, Psalm 118 is about Messiah and Psalm 119 about Torah. 
these sort of Messiah and Torah are placed side by side at these three key junctions in the Psalms in order to help us understand what are the Psalms doing as a whole? Because while Psalm 1 is the opening to the Psalms, it's not particularly a prayer. It's a wisdom meditation. It's a poem about the two ways, the way of the blessed man, the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked. Psalm 1 warns us not to be enamored of the company of the ungodly. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's a progressiveness to that triad of thoughts. When you listen to the wrong people, there's a pattern that follows. It starts by walking in the counsel of the wicked. Who are your closest friends? Do they call you to delight in the law of God or do they urge you to live according to your own desires? And the psalmist is implicitly saying, cursed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked because no matter how well-intentioned he is, it's only a matter of time before walking becomes standing because you're not walking anymore now. Now you're standing around and you're sort of hanging out here. And then pretty soon you're not just standing with them. Now you're, you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. What happens when you sit in the seat of scoffers? Well, what do people who sit in the seat of scoffers do? They scoff. And now you're one of them. You started off just, just walking together and then you're standing with them, and now you're sitting with them because you're one of them. The one who walks in the counsel of the wicked and who then stops to stand around and talk in the way of sinners will sit in the seat of scoffers. You will now call others to join you in the mocking. So the truly blessed man is one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Paul warns us about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. But also this threefold pattern of walking, standing, and sitting ought to give us an insight into the contrast. The blessed man does not walk, stand, or sit with the wicked because his delight is in the law of the Lord. And this is where, again, Torah carries that broader sense of instruction. The blessed man does not listen to the counsel of the wicked, but delights in Yahweh's counsel. Indeed, the, the whole of the Torah is, it, it, the Torah, here the Torah of God, by putting this at, at the beginning of Psalm 1, the psalmist is saying, pay attention to now the whole book of Psalms because the Psalms is also the Torah of God. There are the five books of Torah, the five books of Moses, and now there are the five books of the Psalms, which is very intentionally patterned after the five books of Moses. And the psalmist is saying, pay attention to what follows because in these five books, you will also find the same Torah that you heard in the books of Moses. Our habit today is to read the Bible in terms of our own experience. We take our own life as the standard and we ask, how does the Bible fit into my life? But that's actually the counsel of the wicked. Because if we delighted in God's Torah, if his stories and rules were what brought us pleasure and delight, then we would take his Torah as the standard for our life. And we would ask, how does our life fit into the story that he is telling? 
I think of Mary Rowlandson, a 17th century New England Puritan woman who was taken captive by Indians. And she, she told her story and it was written down as, and as she tells it, it's, it's, she writes it as an embodiment of Israel's exile. How she shares in Israel's alienation and abandonment. She, she reads the stories of the scriptures and she says, this is my story. I am joined to the, to the life of the people of God. When you read the Bible, you're not supposed to be a mere spectator of the truth. You're not simply seeking to satisfy your own curiosity. You are a participant in the truth. You are a participant in the story that is being told, in the rules that are being given. I've heard a few of you ask recently, what does it mean to listen to God? Well, to listen to God is very much at the heart of what it means to meditate on his word, as the psalmist says. It's, it's soaking in his word, meditating on his law, his instruction. As you do this, you hear his voice because you know him. The blessed man delights in the law of God. The blessed man meditates day and night on the word of God. Because meditation it means to, to chew, to ruminate, to, to think deeply. You can take a particular passage, a verse, even a word, and reflect on what this means. I mean, in, in Eastern meditation, it's, the goal of meditation is to empty the mind. But in, in Christian meditation, as in here in Psalm 1, the goal of meditation is to be filled with the Spirit. The goal of meditation is to, is to be filled with God's Word to soak in the word of God. And that's where reflecting, for instance, on, it's, it's sort of what the, the psalmist is doing with verse three, that he is like a tree. What, what, what does it mean to be like a tree? Well, the righteous will come to the Psalter and, and drink deeply from its refreshing streams, finding life-giving water in its songs. The picture of the tree is valuable because this tree yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Fruit and foliage are both important. In one sense, fruit is what the tree lives for, is what the tree's purpose is. But without foliage, there will be no fruit. The summer sun is both essential to the ripening of the fruit, but also threatening because the sun can make the fruit and the foliage wither. The, the threat of withering is very real. But notice, not because the blessed man is ungodly. Far from it. The godly face the prospect of withering, not because they are ungodly, but because they are godly. Because this is where book one of the Psalms, as we go through Psalms 1 to 41, there's a lot in these books, in these Psalms, about the threats, the dangers, the, the withering of the righteous. There's a lot of, of laments in book one where, and it's, this is part of why it's such a useful thing to sort of spend time soaking in the Psalms because we have lots of laments in our lives. And part of what we see in book one of the Psalms is that, that there are lots of dangers and threats to the godly. But Psalm one was placed here in order to remind us that these threats are not the end of the story. In all that he does, he prospers. Everything that he does thrives. Now, as we go through book one, we'll see. There's lots of times when David is not thriving. There's lots of times when David is, is at his wit's end. In order for Psalm 1 to be true, we have to have an eschatological vision. 
Where is the story going? When we say that in all that he does, he prospers, that doesn't mean that everything, I mean, this, is not, this, this is not one of those like, oh, every, you know, everything's fine. I, I've, I was in a church like that where those people, I'm, I'm, sure they had, I'm sure they had problems in their lives, but on Sunday morning, that wasn't allowed. On Sunday morning, everybody was fine. Everybody was blessed. Everybody was happy. Everybody, you know how exhausting it would be to try to pretend that was true? But the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, talking of that law, meditating on that law, ruminating and rejoicing in the word of the Lord. Uh, book 1 and book 2, actually, Psalms 1 through 72, will be called the, the, the songs of David, the prayers of David. And even though some are written by other authors, it certainly refers to books one and two are about what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God when the king is on the throne? And that is where we are. The king is on the throne. Does that mean that everything's fine now? Uh, No, we don't yet see everything under his feet. But we see Jesus. And that's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. The wicked are not so but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked claim to have wise counsel. They have schemes for success, seven steps to financial freedom, special techniques for happiness in marriage. But the best they can do is say, these things will probably work. Their path may produce some temporary highs, but the psalmist sees beyond their schemes. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Jeremiah had contrasted the blessed tree with the cursed shrub. Psalm 1 doesn't even give them that. Let's say it more starkly. The contrast is between a living tree and chaff. You see, the desert shrub, if, if you just gave it more water, it would, be probably, it would probably do pretty well. The problem with the wicked is not that they don't have enough water. You can pour water on chaff all day long. Nothing will grow. Well, maybe some mold. Um, But (laughs) you can read scripture to the wicked all day long. It doesn't change their hearts. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. They are the, the byproduct of the harvest The chaff was part of the plant while it was growing, but now it is fit for nothing but destruction. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. When God judges the nations, when he separates the sinners from the congregation of the righteous, those who walked in the counsel of the wicked, who stood in the the way of sinners, who sat in the seat of scoffers, will not stand. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God did not give his law, his Torah, his instruction, simply as good advice. Maybe you should try it. No, he gave it as the way of life, the way of blessing, the way to all good things. 
The man who walks in his ways, who delights in his instruction, will indeed stand in the judgment and be found in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What does it mean that the Lord knows the ways of the righteous? Doesn't God know everything? Of course. So, so what does it mean for the Lord to know the way of the righteous? Augustine said it wisely. To be unknown to the Lord is to perish. And to be known by him is to remain. What did Jesus say to those who cried out, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all sorts of miracles in your name? Did he say, depart from me. You have misunderstood the doctrine of total depravity. No. He said, depart from me, I never knew you. For the Lord to know the way of the righteous, this is not just a, has intellectual information about. It means that he knows us and loves us. Psalm 1 stands at the beginning of the Psalter calling Israel to delight in God's Torah, in the instruction of the Lord. Israel was called to live as the congregation of the righteous, to be that tree planted by streams of water and prosper in all their ways. How'd they do? Not so good. But, but through the centuries, faithful Israelites sang this psalm hoping and praying that God would establish his congregation of the righteous, that he would vindicate the righteous and condemn the wicked. Ezekiel speaks of, uh, of his vision in chapter 47, that a, a stream of living water, it starts off as a trickle, flowing from the temple, giving water to the tree of life. Indeed, a, a forest of life-giving trees. That's the source of the picture that Revelation uses in Revelation 22. And as, as Jesus grew up, he, he grew up in a faithful Israelite family. Mary, thanks be to God, would have taught him to sing the Psalms. In the temple, he would have sung them. As, as he sang the Psalms, he, he saw that they were all about himself. All of Israel's history was pointing to him. Indeed, he was one who, when he sang the Psalms, as he read the scriptures, he saw his life was embodied in that story. And Psalm 1 takes on new light when we sing it in Christ. Because Jesus, the Messiah, is indeed the blessed man. He never once walked in the counsel of the wicked. He alone refused to stand in the way of sinners. And he never sat in the seat of scoffers. It's worth noting. He spent lots of time with those people. It's not that you can't spend time with them. But he never once sat in the seat of scoffers. He never joined them in their endeavors. His delight was in the Torah, the instruction of the Lord. On his law, he meditated day and night. He was tempted in all ways like us, but without sin. And even in the midst of his temptation, the law of God remained his counselor. When the devil tempted him, he delighted in the law of his father and quotes Deuteronomy back to the devil. Jesus indeed is like a tree planted by streams of water. When Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he suggests that we are not the blessed man by ourselves. We become the blessed man by being united to him. He is 
the blessed man. He is the one who is the tree. But by being engrafted into him, we also become the blessed man in him. Jesus is the tree planted by streams of water. As Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. But when you abide in him, you do bear fruit in him who is the tree. How do you abide in Jesus? Well, Jesus says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Psalm 1 called Israel to delight in the law of the Lord and they would live Well, Jesus is the one who delighted in the law of the Lord and who stood in the day of judgment. And so the only way for us to delight in the law of the Lord is to abide in Jesus and keep his commandments. We sing Psalm 1 in him as those who abide in that tree. Without singing Psalm 1 about Jesus, we would have to sing it tentatively. I hope this is me. I'm not quite sure. But when we sing Psalm 1 in Jesus, we sing it with confidence because I am in Christ. And because I am in Christ, this is about me too. And as we come, we, we then learn how to speak as his words, as we, as we meditate on his words, as we ruminate, as we chew on them, as we digest them, as we, then we begin to also speak them back. Lord, speak to me that I may speak. So let us pray. Lord, help us because we have, we have nothing apart from you. And so we ask that you would have mercy upon us for Jesus' sake, that you would help us to hear your word, to meditate on your law, to rejoice and delight. Lord, help us because we have so torn apart things that belong together and we, we too often think of of your word as a chore to be, to be tackled rather than a delight and a joy to find our, our life in. Lord, help us and grant that we might hear the voice of your son and that we might be filled by, with your spirit, that we might live together as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.